The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Hello, Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I am your host, Atik Malik, Director of Liberty Law Solicitors, and your host for today's Toolkit show. A live show uh, with no panellists, just myself and you, the listeners, or viewers even, if you're watching on social media, such as Facebook or the internet um, via the website for Inspire FM. So we are going live today. This is your show. Make it your show. Own it. All you have to do is call in, message in, uh, tweet or um, post on the uh, Facebook Live, whatever is easier for you, but let's make this your show. Today we're discussing criminal law, so any questions you may have on criminal law, you have an opportunity here to ask me of it, you can do it anonymously, you don't have to uh, tell us your real name or anything like that, but if we can help you in any way, feel free to seize this opportunity or some of you may think well actually i don't wish to speak um uh, or live on radio or i do not wish to have my question um asked um uh, live on radio even if it is anonymous or read out because it's such a personal matter well, that's fair enough if you wish you can always contact the studio directly or ourselves at our offices to speak to me directly uh, of any matters that, that you may have that concern you but to make contact the number is 01582 uh, 481822 that's 01582 481822 um, you can mobile uh, uh, on the mobile you can call actually you can't call on the mobile you would do whatsapp so you can whatsapp to the studio on 07979 481822 that's 07979 481822 you can also um, contact us by the website or view us on the website or with the link at Inspire FM Luton and also the tag Inspire FM Luton can be used uh, to uh, watch the show and comment on it using a Facebook Live so come on people let's interact let's have a discussion let's discuss criminal law now with criminal law the topic today is going to be on well the topic today is going to be on primarily money laundering POCA which is also known as the Proceeds of Crime Act um, and also the Law of Conspiracies now this is this is just a general headline topics that I'm going to be discussing today and the reason why I've chosen these topics to discuss with you is because often within uh, the local community and the sort of questions we get from new clients uh, a lot of them would seem to um, revolve around these areas of law um, a lot of the time people might have cash money that's been seized by the police and then processes kick off and they want to know how do they deal with that how do they get that money back can the police hold on to that money um in some cases even jewelry such as gold um the police might raid a house to do a search find substantial gold or other valuable items and seize that also so the people you know often contact us to say well how can they do that what other powers allow them to do that how do we resolve the situation how do we get this back um similarly um quite often um we see people being arrested who may be in the wrong place at the wrong time or not just physically but maybe even communicating with the wrong person at the wrong time and they get dragged into a case that they state they know nothing about and often again the question comes up either from them or their families of how did this happen why am i being dragged into this case no one's found drugs on me or no one's found me with a weapon no one's um, seen me do anything why am I being dragged into this case simply because of a text message or a phone call that's been made or my location on a certain day at a certain time, either on my own or with somebody? What is going on here? Now, that would come under the law of conspiracies. Similarly, if we have time, another common question that I have from the community, which people often get confused with and do not understand how it works, are two further topics, actually. One is the law of self-defense. What is defense? What is self-defense? How does that law work? That won't take uh, long to explain, but it does need explaining because people are very confused about that and do not seem to understand how that works. Um and then there was a fourth topic which has just escaped me 
and I can't remember what it was going to be, but I'm sure as the show goes on, I will remember it and try and introduce that. But as many of you regular listeners know, um, we try to cover as much as we can during the show, but quite often we simply run out of time. And that's partly why I do these toolkit shows, um, because we can focus more time discussing a topic in detail whereas when we have a panel discussion yes it's very interesting you hear different flavors in terms of different voices and different contexts and different backgrounds and different angles coming in and speaking but uh, of course uh, you will cover less topics or in less detail in a panel discussion than you would with a one-on-one with a specialist such as myself or another lawyer um, simply because uh, when we're having a debate or a discussion in the studio, it, we can go on off on a tangent sometimes. Um, but not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, recently I presented a seminar uh, on employment law um, and bullying in the workplace. And it was quite interesting because um, I decided to not do a script, not do a presentation where we simply go through slides. But I thought to myself, let's do this as an interactive presentation uh, where everyone in the room was discussing and contributing uh, to the seminar. And it was amazing. Some of the force and ideas that came out of that seminar, um, I would say, in actual fact, the end result of that was that we probably covered more items and more detail doing it that way than we would have have had I just had a a straight linear uh, speech or um, slideshow ready which I was going through robotically so it depends on the situation but I think at least once a month we try and do this toolkit show for you the listeners and viewers out there simply because it gives it a different angle and as I said before allows us to focus more time on various areas of law and allows you to call in now um talking about future shows it'd be more than welcome if you the community could contact us with any specific topics or areas of law and i mean all areas of law that you wish to have um, further information on it doesn't matter if it's immigration law or family law or intellectual property law or contract or employment um, international law whatever you the community feel that you would benefit from just let us know email us here at the studio facebook us message us or contact me directly again via social media you'll find my name atik malik uh, if you put it into google or linkedin or facebook or twitter etc you should be able to find it um and uh, you know just let contact us and let us know um, if there's any specific area of law that you would like us to focus more on or do a show on uh, etc and similarly there might be other professionals out there listening this show is open to everybody if there's people out there from other law firms or professional backgrounds and there's some sort of impact on law and you think that you would like to appear on the show or contribute to the show in terms of coming on as a guest or have a topic that you think is interesting or or hot that we should be discussing again please feel free to make contact with us and so that we can consider that uh, accordingly Uh, now Coming back to the topics in question today, we're going to start off with uh, money laundering. What is money laundering? Now, money laundering, um, the term describes a process where somebody is laundering money. What does laundering mean? Well, when you have dirty clothes and you wish to wash them, the process of washing them... uh, entails the process of laundry you know going to the laundry putting the laundry into the washing machine this terminology means washing cleaning so when you apply that terminology to the word money what is being discussed here is a process of cleaning money now some of you might say well why would i need to clean money are we talking about putting money in water and washing it no we're not we are talking about a situation where people are in possession of money but are unable to uh, use it in the normal sense and to be able to be in a position to use it they have to effectively do go through a cleaning process i.e laundry i.e laundering money laundering process so how does that work then? Let's examine the first part of that. The reason why the money is unusable could be for a number of things. In this country, and and I'm sure 
almost every country around the world, if not the most. The law of every country sets out means and processes which make the mechanism of earning money legal and illegal, first of all. So that's the first stage. So if you go to work in a legitimate job and you earn a living, that's legitimate money. So if you then use that money to buy something or apply for a loan in some shape or form, or you are asked to account for how you bought something. It's very straightforward because at that point, you will simply show your bank statements or wage slips or invoices um, to the relevant authority or the person asking the question to show where the money has come from and that it is legitimate in terms of arriving from a legitimate source for legitimate reasons, such as work. Now, there are certain jobs out there which are illegal. So, for example, um, if you were selling Class A drugs, most countries in the world um, deem it illegal to sell Class A drugs, such as heroin, crack cocaine, cocaine, etc. Now, therefore, if someone is making a living from uh, selling Class A drugs, then the potential is that they are making... Um, a significant amount of money from which they wish to then use, right? So there's no point in making money if you can't use it. Now, when it comes to small items, such as buying some jewellery or going out on a good night out, etc., the person who's making money from selling Class A drugs doesn't need to worry about showing where the money's come from because in those situations you can more or less use cash money to go and enjoy yourself and have a flash meal, buy flash clothes, flash jewellery, um, no, have a flash night out, maybe even a flash holiday. Um, but life is more than just leisure. It's also about building a future. At some point, everybody wants to have a house. Everybody wants to have be able to pay for certain parts uh, of their life, which you cannot do with cash payments. And in that situation, a person who's making money from illegal means, such as selling drugs uh, or from fraud, etc., would have to then think of a way of making that money seem legitimate so that if any inquiry is made you know they are not prosecuted for it because of course having money that is from um criminal source for criminal work um is criminal property in itself and is a criminal offense to earn and have and then similarly anything you buy with that money uh, becomes tainted and that's where the Process of Crime Act kicks in in this country. And I'm sure many other countries have something similar. But in this country, the Proceeds of Crime Act. And if you break that down, what that means is that this is legislation which governs money, i.e. proceeds, from criminal activity. So that's why it's called Proceeds of Crime. That from criminal activity, money has been made. And there's legislation in this country to govern what is the repercussions of that the legislation goes beyond just talking about the repercussions it also sets out the test for what precisely amounts to criminal property in terms of money for example um, and what powers the state has in respect to that and so often when we see money or high value items such as jewelry etc being seized by authorities such as the police and restrained and then in the end potentially disposed of by way of confiscation often that is being uh, done under the proceeds of crime act because it's the proceeds of crime act that gives the police that power to um, uh, seize money and confiscate money and make confiscation orders we'll go into that shortly as well so that is what it triggers um, people trying to clean money because effectively money made from criminal activity is regarded as dirty money 
So they want to take the dirty money made from criminal activity and clean it, you know, so that it becomes clean money that they can use for legitimate purposes such as maybe buying a house or buying a business um, or investing in something of some shape or form. Now, the cleaning process can happen in many ways. For example, um, often people might use a third party um, to make it look like that they are working for them and getting paid legitimate money for them. But in actual fact, the money is coming from somewhere else. Or the money may move between two or three or four companies to look like it's a series of transactions taking place at the end of which person X benefits. And it looks like on the face of it, that person X has been paid for work done. But in actual fact, it's not for work done, it's for criminal activity um, which has generated money and someone's been paid for it. And then they've simply moved that money through the system to such a point that it looks like legitimate money. Um, but that's not the only type of criminal property under the Process of Crime Act. Under the Process of Crime Act, any money that is regarded as undeclared income can also fall into that category. So, for example, if someone has a cash business, such as a grocery store or they're a taxi driver, and they're earning, say, £50,000, £60,000 a year in profit, but to the taxman, to HMRC, they are only declaring, say, £12,000. The remainder of the money that has not been declared, if it is detected, is also potentially criminal property because it is undeclared income. And so often we see a situation where people are subjected to Proceeds of Crime Act investigations that they will say, but hang on a second, this money was not generated from drug dealing or some sort of a fraud or anything. This money was generated from my legitimate income as a taxi driver or a painter and decorator or running a grocery store of some shape or form. And therefore, it's not from an illegal activity. So why is the money now legal? Why is the HMRC or the police able to seize this money and take it from me? And it's because when it's not declared properly to HMRC, it then falls into the category of potential criminal property, which allows entities such as the police or HMRC or anyone else pursuing an action under the process of crime act to then seize that money um, uh, and, again, confiscate it or go through the relevant um, processes. So how is that relevant to our community? Well, from first-hand experience, we've often seen uh, situations where someone in the family is arrested for something. I don't know. Let's give an example. A young person in the family, a young lad, gets into a fight at college or on the street somewhere. And the fight, is a, someone's injured quite seriously and it's alleged that this young man had a weapon on them. Police identify who this person is, they arrest him. Following the arrest, it triggers a power of uh, Section 18 searches call, which allows the police to search the property of someone who is in custody for an offence to allow them to look for any evidence um, relating to the offence of which they've been arrested for. When that happens... The police can then suddenly turn up at a person's house and search the house. Often in a community, at the house, you've got a whole family living there. Mum, dad, brothers, sisters, brother-in-law, son-in-law, sister-in-law, etc. And unfortunately, then there is a risk that, because when the police come and do a search, if they discover evidence of any other criminal activity, they then still have to seize that and investigate that also, even if it's got nothing to do with the offence for which they attended the property in the first place. Um, yes, there are limits to what they can and cannot search, but if they have reasonable suspicion that there is a part of the property which the person has access to, um, 
and under the section 18 search power as long as they can justify it they can also search that part of the property too so picture this a person has been arrested for getting into a fight the allegation involves the use of a weapon the police are now searching the person's car for a weapon and we don't find it but they find some money or drugs they then go to the house and search the house and find within the house large sums of cash maybe large amounts of jewelry such as gold and they seize all of that also when they seize that the problem then is that all of that is now within a system where it may have to be accounted for now within many communities there are a system for example of people what they call a committee where members of the community give money to people to hold as a form of interest-free saving so that if they even need it for a rainy day it's there and it's accessible now often a situation can arise if somebody who's holding committee money has their house suddenly searched by the police for something completely unrelated but the money is seized now this has happened quite uh, frequently in the past we've had more than one occasion where a person has been uh, uh, subjected to a search and they've done nothing wrong but they're actually holding committee committee uh, speech marks committee as they say money uh, in large volumes at the house and all of that money has been seized. And you could be looking at money in the region of 60, 70, 80,000 pounds, if not more. Now, clearly that's significant money. The police may then look at this person and think, hang on a second, you either have no job or you're in a job which pays a very low level of income. And yet you've got 70 to 80,000 pounds in cash at your house. We suspect this is criminal property. And in that situation then, the person who, whose house the money's been taken from may be placed in a position where they then need to account for that money. To account for that money, they would have to contact every single person who does the committee system with them to then give um, details of where they got that money from. And then when you start going down this route, you can then have another problem arising where the people that have given the money may not have declared their own income in full to HMRC. They themselves are getting paid cash. And out of that cash money that they are getting, so that it's not detected or, or subject to HMRC deductions, they've been putting a portion of that into the committee and now they're in a situation where undeclared income uh, is being questioned and if they come forward there's a risk depending on how much money it is that they could open up another um, um, can of worms for themselves where um, undeclared income is now the subject of investigation and potentially a money laundering uh, case being um, faced uh, by them uh, and as I said this has happened in the past and uh, within our community we often see a situation where a lot of people are, do operate in high levels of, of uh, cash uh, transactions and may keep large volumes of cash at home sometimes you may find a situation where a family is working together to save up for an event such as a wedding or something else and everybody has pulled the money together and unfortunately for them the police suddenly arrive and pick up all the money um, because they on the face of it suspect that it's criminal property and so from my own perspective the moral of that story would be that you know if possible if we can avoid making such a mistake of having large amounts of cash money at home it's probably for the best because a you're at risk of someone burgl uh, committing a burglary and taking all of that money or b if the police were to arrive and seize it it can open up a can of worms or create a real issue for the for you for that person i mean even if they could prove that the money is legitimate the sheer stress and headache of having to go through all of that uh, i would say is simply not worth it but there it is that is how legitimate money from a legitimate source can then be regarded as criminal property. 
So what happens when that money is seized? Now, it's a bit of an anomaly in the law in that in the magistrate's court, ordinarily you have criminal cases running. So that's the arena for criminal prosecutions. Somebody uh, has, for example, okay, we come to the end of the first part of the show, we're just finishing off. So I'll just quickly say the magistrate's court is normally a criminal arena. But however, there is a power there for um, money that's been seized to be um, retained by the police under a civil procedure that takes place in the magistrate's court. So after a break, I'll explain how that civil procedure works, and then I'll go into the more famously known pocket proceedings that most people are familiar with. Uh, and so if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to call in, comment in, um, however uh, is comfortable for you um, with any uh, questions or comments on this topic that we're discussing today or any other topic within criminal law um, as we are doing a criminal law toolkit today. 01582 is Bar FM Luton on Facebook. Salaam Alaikum. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome back to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I am your host. Yeah, I am your host, Atik Malik, Liberty Law Solicitors, and we are discussing today the law of money laundering, POCA also known as the Proceeds of Crime Act, and the law of conspiracies, if we get to it. Um, as I said in the first part of the show, the Toolkit show is a one-on-one show between myself and you, the listeners and viewers. We don't have any other panellists in the studio um, to ask questions uh, of or debate with. Uh, this is simply a Toolkit show analysing a specific area of law in detail. And often it is the case that we go into so much detail uh, that we run out of time. Okay, so if we do go, get on to the law of conspiracies and the law of self-defense, then we will do. If we do not, uh, then those are topics that I will be discussing on the next show that I do, uh, inshallah. Okay, so live show, your show, 01582 481822. That's 01582 that's for zero triple seven nine four eight one eight two two for whatsapping or messaging um the studios uh during this live show um we also have um inspire fm on facebook with the facebook live feed going on right now as we speak and the benefit of that of course is you can see myself in the studio live um, in HD video and sound as well as messaging or using Facebook live with any questions or comments that you might have on the show today. Criminal law show today, toolkit show discussing proceeds of crime, money laundering and then hopefully conspiracies and the law of self-defense. So in the first part of the show um, I set out in detail uh, what is meant by the words money laundering, um, what the legislation is that covers that, such as the Proceeds of Crime Act, and a situation uh, in which a p- normal person might get dragged into um, uh, money laundering uh, or Proceeds of Crime Act proceedings without realising, even though they are not actually doing anything illegal to earn money such as drug dealing or committing some sort of fraud but you know you might be a legitimate uh, person working in a legitimate job such as i don't know uh, painting decorating taxi working in a shop somewhere um but um, simply because you've kept large amounts of cash at home if the police attend it can cause an inconvenience and if you have undeclared income where you are running a cash business and you've only declared to HMRC for example uh, circa £12,000 um, and the remainder of it is undeclared if that money comes to light as undeclared income it can cause a problem now how does money come to light how can it be detected 
Now, one way, of course, is as the example that I gave in the first part of the show, where the police might attend upon you randomly or because of something else that's happened and search you as in your person, search your vehicle or search your house where you live or your flat and they find uh, items there such as large wads of cash which makes them think actually there's something going on here this needs to be explained um, to ensure that it's not proceeds of crime i.e. money from criminal activity or undeclared income um, uh, which uh, would then necessitate seizure and confiscation so how else can you be detected because it's not just about bad luck where you've suddenly have been subject to a search as I described but you could also have a situation where um, the police might be aware that you are of no income or little income for whatever reason. And those reasons could be many. One reason could be because you are claiming benefits and the benefits agency has their own markers on bank accounts. So if you are claiming benefits, um, any money or any income that you have or any savings that you have, you are required to disclose that to the benefits agency, i.e. the local authority. Um, if a large sum of money lands in your bank account, it often causes an interest rate spike, which is picked up by DWP um, IT systems. And from that, they can uh, figure out that there is a large sum of money moving in or into your account. And then subsequent to that, if you haven't declared that, that again is undeclared income which could amount to benefit fraud because um, you're only entitled to benefits if um, the calculation has been made on your income. If you have monies uh, in savings or income that you have not provided to a benefits agency, then there's an argument that the benefit you're receiving is incorrect and that it amounts to uh, an fraud um, because you are going against the um, circumstances of the agreement that you've signed with the benefits agency when receiving benefits wherein not only do you sign a statement of truth but you also sign a declaration that you will inform and update the benefits agency of any changes in circumstances in particular any income or any savings so it's almost like a contract between you and the benefits agency so that's one way that it can be detected because the benefits agency first detects um, a, a fraud, a benefit fraud going on. Um, they can investigate and prosecute themselves or they can refer it on to the police to do so. Um, more often than not, local authorities do prosecute themselves and we see that quite regularly in courts such as, and also HMRC. HMRC can also detect um, uh, and investigate a person. So if someone's uh, only um, showing, say, as I said, £12,000. And the reason that I say £12,000 is not it's a figure I've made up. is because often what people do is they only declare up to or slightly more than their personal allowance. Now, a personal allowance, for those who do not know, is the threshold under tax law which is tax-free so often what we see is people declaring their income up to or just beyond the personal allowance threshold of circa £12,000 um, and then the remainder of the money they don't declare so if so say HMRC were investigating you for whatever reason and they saw that you had a, a, a lifestyle that did not match the income you were declaring that could also trigger investigation. And that investigation can be by the police or by HMRC. And again, it can be prosecuted by the police or HMRC. And I've done cases like this before where people have been interviewed for tax fraud or tax evasion. And they are very boring interviews because you've got to sit there and go through, um, you know, transaction upon transaction upon transaction that has taken place through the person's bank account or where they've been observed with certain things such as expensive cars or expensive watches etc and then they go through all of their tax paperwork to say well this is what you declared in this year this is how much has gone through your bank accounts but we can see that you've bought this or you've done this so another way of defining it is criminal lifestyle is examination of your lifestyle so if your lifestyle is indicative of of a person of a certain amount of wealth but your 
bank records or your tax records illustrate or indicate a person of a different type of um, uh, a different type of uh, uh, income uh, threshold uh, level, then that can obviously trigger questions and investigation. And how do they find out? Well, sometimes you might be unlucky where the police or HMRC are just doing a review of people your name comes up. But more often than not, it all starts with somebody making a complaint somewhere along the line. Sometimes it might be an upset spouse who thinks uh, that he or she is going to get you back. Maybe you've had a breakup and then they think, well, I'm going to sort him or her out. And they anonymously tip off the police or HMRC and say, well, you might want to look at this person's income because the lifestyle they're leading does not match what they've declared. Similarly, you might have people within your own town or people at work that maybe don't like you or maybe it's not even that. Maybe they genuinely feel or think that you are up to no good. And it's not that they don't like you, but because they think you're up to no good, rightly or wrongly, um, they have made a report so that the authorities can investigate it and get to the bottom of it. And sometimes it might just be somebody who just doesn't like you, maybe doesn't even know you, and is just jealous of you and has decided to make your life a misery and decided to report you to HMRC or the police or local benefits office. It could come from any angle. Um, and if it does and it triggers an investigation, they will be looking at your lifestyle. And their lifestyle doesn't just include um, what house you're in. It can include an examination of um, what items you own, what items you buy, such as even clothes, where you eat, what restaurants you go to, um, where you socialise. It could also quite often include not just an examination of your assets, which, which can include cars, etc., but also um, where you might go on holiday. For example, someone might be on uh, an, or declaring an income which is on a low level, but then in the course of a year they're going on five or six lavish holidays. That, again, could trigger investigation uh, into, well, how does this person who has um, such a low income afford um, such a lifestyle where they're going on holiday all the time or they're buying all these flash cars or these flash watches or flash clothes etc so an examination of lifestyle is a key um, investigation method for uh, money laundering or process of crime act or benefit fraud investigations also by um, local authorities now if your money is seized, um, as I explained in the first part of the show, where the police suddenly just turn up at your house and seize your money, in the magistrate's court, it, it can go through a civil process. And the reason why it's different to a criminal process is because the um, civil process works on a balance of probabilities. So in a civil process, the prosecution um, do not have to prove... Um, beyond reasonable doubt as was the old saying or to be sure uh, that your money is unlawful you simply need to show that it's likely to be based on um, the information that they have and then you would have to equally show that no this money is legitimate from this sources um, and then if they can do that uh, then the court would have to release the money back to the person it's been seized from now, often we have a situation where a person has been arrested, let's say for fraud or drugs case. Police have gone to the house and found X amount of money. They've seized it. And whilst there's a criminal case now running in the criminal court, such as the Crown Court, the person is getting notifications from the police for the magistrate's hearings regarding the money. And often the People will call us and say, what do we do about these cases in the magistrate's court because I've got the Crown Court criminal case running and they have seized my money. I think I can account for it. And they keep asking me to come to the magistrate's court. Um, can I get legal aid? Can you help me with this? Can you come to court for me? And what do I do? Now, let's just run through those questions very quickly. First of all, because it's a civil case, um, there's no legal aid for it. So if the police have seized your money and they were hearing the magistrate's court 
regarding that money that's been seized, you can instruct a solicitor to help you, and it is advisable that you do. The solicitor can go to court, make representations for you, can write letters and make representations for you, and or prepare your case to help you get your money back. But there's no legal aid. So if you had a few hundred pounds seized, and then you're going to pay a few hundred pounds or a couple of thousand to a solicitor to try and get the money back, you might find that you end up in a situation where you spend more money than the money that's owed to you. Um, and so you have to be very careful with how you deal with these matters. You do not automatically get legal aid for every single thing. Your legal aid is only available for certain types of cases. This is one of those cases or situations where there is uh, legal aid is not available. Secondly, um, there is another situation because if you give evidence in the civil case to try and get your money back, any evidence that comes out in that case can also then be used in the criminal case. And so, therefore, there is a risk that by trying to get your money back from the civil arena, um, you could prejudice your criminal case. And our advice always is that the criminal case has to take precedent. You cannot risk for the sake of money um, prejudicing yourself in the criminal arena because if you do and you're found guilty in the criminal arena then a you're going to lose that money anyway because if it's drug related case or fraud related case then at the conclusion of the criminal case following conviction not only do you get a criminal conviction and then have to be punished for it and that punishment could include prison but then on top of that you have proceeds of crime act proceedings that take place, also known as pocket proceedings, following a criminal conviction for something that involves making money from criminal activity, such as drug dealing or fraud, etc. And then that money would become seized in that anyway. And the problem with that is this. If you're convicted for certain offences and proceeds of crime proceedings take place, those proceedings are not, not, even if the money you have is legitimate, it can still be confiscated and lost. Now, this is very technical, and a lot of people do not understand how this happens. So let me just go into a bit more detail. Example, person has been arrested for £100,000 drugs class A intent to supply case. They go to court, they... Um, uh, oh, sorry. And when they're arrested, they're also arrested with £50,000 in cash. The £50,000 they can prove is legitimate, it comes from, say, their cousins, their brothers, their mothers, pet fathers, whoever, and they're saving up for a wedding, okay? All the money can be sourced to legitimate sources. It's all declared income because it's been taxed, and so the money is legitimate. But the person has been convicted for a £100,000 drugs case, which is separate to the money. The money's got nothing to do with the drugs case. Upon conviction, the person sentenced, they get, I don't know, let's just say six years in prison, Probably more than that, but I'm just giving this an example. Six years in prison, then the process of crime proceedings take place. In the process of crime proceedings, what the prosecution do is come up with two figures, which then equal the third figure. It's a formula. The first figure is your benefit figure. The second figure is your realizable assets figure. Those two figures offset against each other make the third figure, which is a confiscation order. So the purpose of the Process of Crime Act proceedings is for the court to make a confiscation order against the person who's been convicted for selling drugs or doing fraud, etc. How does that work? It works like this. First of all, the prosecution establish what is your benefit figure, you the person who's been convicted for selling drugs, for example. The benefit figure is made up, number one, from your benefit from your criminal activity. So if you've sold £100,000 worth of drugs, the police would say, the prosecution, sorry, would say that therefore you've made a £100,000 benefit from this criminal activity of drug dealing. So first of all, that's the first figure, £100,000 for benefit figure. But then under the Process of Crime Act, the prosecution can go back up to six years to investigate your accounts and your trading history to see if there's any other money uh, that's come in or assets which they feel 
are also potentially criminal property. So let's say they go back and they see that you've got all these cash payments coming into your bank account and they have not been declared to HMRC and they add up to say £50,000 over six years, then the benefit figure is now £150,000. Even if that money is from legitimate sources, if it's not been declared, they can treat it as criminal property. And so you have £50,000 from there and £100,000 from drug dealing. Total figure, £150,000 benefit figure. That's the first part of the formula. Next part of the formula is your realisable assets. Because the law says, unless it's a case of hidden assets, which is a separate topic for another day, so let's put that to one side. But on a straightforward pocket case, the law says that the confiscation order cannot be more than your realisable assets. And the realisable assets are your actual assets that you have. Now, your actual assets, it is what it says on the tin. It's not assets from criminal activity. It's just what your assets are. So let's say, for example, you have a house from legitimate sources. You've got your money that's been seized, £50,000 from legitimate sources. Um, That is all of that makes up your assets. And I don't know, an expensive watch, a car, etc. So let's say your total assets, legitimate assets, come up to £100,000. Your benefit figure is £150,000. That means the maximum confiscation order that can be made in that case is £100,000 because that is the maximum of assets you have. And the confiscation order is a debt to the government. So what they're saying is you owe a debt to the government of £100,000 because you have benefited in criminal property from this offence and over the past six years to a total amount of £150,000 but your your assets are only at £100,000 so that's the maximum order we can do. Once they make the order, they say to the person, well, you can either pay this money to us within X amount of time, say three months, and if you can pay it to us in three months, then that's the end of it, confiscation order satisfied. If you can't pay the £100,000, for example, within three months, they can then give you a further prison sentence, separate to what you're already suffering from your conviction, simply for failing to provide, pay the money under the Process of Crime Act. And then on top of that, they can force a sale of your assets to um, satisfy the debt and so that means that a legitimate house for example bought from legitimate sources for legitimate means can then become at risk of being lost to satisfy a confiscation order which is effectively a debt to the government so let's say there's a £150,000 benefit figure you've had to pay £100,000 to um, uh, satisfy the debt. What happens to the other fifty k? Does it disappear? No, it doesn't. The £50,000 then sort of hovers in the air, in, in, so to speak. It doesn't actually go away, but it can't be action unless you come into money. So what happens then is that the other £50,000 you still owe to the government, but you're only required to pay it if you come into money and so often we see cases where somebody has had a confiscation order many years ago the confiscation order let's say for example was for a hundred thousand pounds but at the time they had no assets so the maximum order made at the time was for one pound and at the time they thought brilliant i only had to pay one pound for its confiscation order which leaves ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine pounds left to pay fast forward 10 15 years they come into money from somewhere, they buy a house on their name, start a business on their name, etc. And then somehow the police find out that this person now does have capital assets. Even if it's not for the full 99000 it's for at least some of it. They can at that stage then put an application to the court to come back and say, this person had a confiscation, had a realised so benefit figure of say 100000 He's only paid a pound of it so far because at the time he's only had he had no realizable assets. However, now we can see he's got fifty grand of assets or hundred grand of assets. Grand means thousands, um, and so we are applying for the remainder of that money to be paid, and they can do that. And you've been difficulty in challenging that because the confiscation order has already been made, and then um, when they apply for you to pay it, you can either pay it. Um, at their request and if you don't then they can appoint court receivers 
court-appointed uh, court enforcers who can then, um, it's like debt collectors, who can then, once the High Court uh, gives them the rubber stamp, and they have the authority to seize your assets and sell them to satisfy the debt to the government that's been made under the uh, confiscation order. So hopefully, I know that's very, very technical, and there may be many of you out there who who have a lot of questions and feel that it might be helpful um, simply to ask us in more detail uh, of exactly how that works. But in summary, I hope that assists people in understanding how process of crime uh, and money laundering works, how you can be at risk, in particular how um, if you get caught up in a case where a pocket order is being made, even if you've got legitimate sources, money that's come from legitimate sources, you've got assets from legitimate sources such as house, car, watches, etc. For the purpose of POCA, they can still be considered. And so that takes us back to a case where, let's say, you are part of a uh, criminal case, which could lead to pocket proceedings if you're convicted, but you also had £50,000 seized from your house, which, doesn't, which you can account for. Often then, because you wouldn't want to prejudice the case, you would put that on the back burner, have that civil case stayed until the conclusion of the criminal case. When the criminal case concludes, if you're found not guilty, you can then go back to the civil case at the magistrate's court for the money and say, look, criminal case is finished. I want to deal with this money. Here's the evidence. This money is legitimate. Give it back to me. And if, all work, if it all marries up, then the court would make the order to release the money back to you. If, however, you're convicted and pocket proceedings take place, then that money, even though it's legitimate, it is seized as part of the pocket proceedings and put into the formula for realisable assets to satisfy the confiscation order. And therefore, even though you can uh, explain the money, you will still lose it. And even though it's legitimate money, you can still lose it as part of the confiscation proceedings. Okay. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show. I hope that was quite clear for everybody out there. And as I said, if it wasn't, you are f please feel free to contact myself or my team directly here at the studio or at Liberty Law Solicitors directly with any assistance that we can provide. And inshallah, I'll speak to you all again soon and hope you all have an amazing week. Asalaamu Alaikum. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org? And follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at InspireFM Luton.